1: Greetings from the Library of Congress, and welcome to African American Passages, Black Lives in the 19th Century. This is a podcast that draws from the Library of Congress's manuscript collections to explore African American history in the era of slavery, the Civil War, and emancipation. My name is Adam Rothman. I teach history at Georgetown University and I'm currently a distinguished visiting scholar at the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. In this episode, we will be reflecting upon an enigmatic collection of archival materials about a black woman from Baltimore named Adeline Henson. She is, as far as I can tell, completely unknown. No historian or other scholar has written about her. No books or articles mention her, not even a blog post. Yet here, in the manuscript collections of the Library of Congress are a handful of documents that give us a glimpse of her life. All we have are a letter about her, a bill of sale, and two photographs. Yet from this fragmentary record, we can glean a surprising amount of information about her, which we must put into a historical context that helps us to understand her life. So today we go in search of Adeline Henson, and with her, the sometimes elusive history of African-American women in the 19th century. Joining me in this search today, I'm happy to say, is my good friend, Professor Martha Jones. Martha is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. She is the author and editor of several books, including most recently, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, which came out in 2018 and, and, a vital collection of essays titled Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women. Professor Jones has thought deeply about the joy and challenge of pursuing 19th century African-American women's history. And she also happens to be an expert on Baltimore, which is where Adeline Henson came from. Martha, welcome to the African-American Passages podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So Martha, let me, let me ask you this. Had you ever heard of Adeline Henson um, before I uh, called you up for this?
0: No. Um, I certainly had never heard of her, um, despite having spent many years in the archives in Baltimore, I'm familiar with a great deal of material from this place and from this time. Um, she's not someone who's ever um, surfaced in the historical record before.
1: Yeah, And I think if anybody would know her, it would be you. So let me ask you this. We have these, we have a letter, we have a bill of sale, we have photographs, when you see a set of documents like this for the first time, as a historian, what goes through your head? How do you how do you begin to approach this set of materials? What questions do you ask yourself?
0: The first set of questions are, um, where did these materials come from? Um, how did they wind up here at the Library of Congress, of all places? Um, as you said in your intro, these are really um, what we might call um, just shards of a life, really very small glimpses of a, a woman um, who I certainly would like to know more about. Um, but my first question is, um, how on earth did these materials wind up in such an esteemed place like the Library of Congress?
1: Yeah, and I think that that puzzle deepens when we remember that the Library of Congress is a repository for the papers of presidents and politicians and and powerful and influential and historically significant people. So how did Adeline Henson sneak in here? Uh, well, let's, let's tackle that question first before we get into the substance of the, of the, um, of the documents. So th- uh, this, these materials are part of a collection at the library called the Black History Collection. It was uh, first cataloged in the late 1990s and it's um, five boxes, about a thousand different artifacts, And it's really a hodgepodge um, of all sorts of things that the library has collected over decades. So the Adeline Henson materials are just one folder in one box of this collection. Um, But I think what's really um, remarkable, one of the really remarkable things about this collection is that part of the collection is the story of how these materials came to the library in the first place. Um, So the letter that we have is from a woman named Ida Greenwell, who was the daughter of the husband and wife who owned Adeline Henson during the era of slavery. The letter is from 1937, and it is a letter in which Ida Greenwell donates uh, the bill of sale and the photographs to the library basically because she wants Adeline Henson to be remembered, to be documented somehow in the nation's archives. Uh, so that's how it came to the library, and I think there are lots of questions about that, which is uh, why did Ida Greenwell think the library would, be, would receive these materials and think they're historically significant? So Martha, what, do you, what can you tell us about maybe the motive of Ida Greenwell to, to to donate these materials to the library.
0: The first thing I have to say is, um, as a historian, I love the hodgepodge, yeah, uh, yeah. which is to say, um, these collections that um, somehow make their way to the library um, don't fit in, aren't part of the. Um, major collections or figures. Um, and it's always true when you open a box that is sort of miscellaneous or has a general um, kind of um, label on it, um, there's always a gem inside. So I really appreciate you um, sort of unearthing this and let us, letting us think about it. Um, Ida Greenwell's letter written in 1937 is very important, um, in part because she narrates the life or a version of the life yeah. of Adeline Henson, um, but also because she does indeed tell us um, part of how she wants not only Henson to be remembered, but how she wants her own family to be remembered. Mm. Um, she reveals um, to us that while her father was not a slaveholder, um, he was willing to purchase a, an enslaved woman back in 1861, um, Adeline, um, to, um, in essence, um, rescue Adeline from sale um, away from Baltimore, um, further south, likely to Georgia, um, where um, certainly she would have encountered um, an extraordinarily harsh fate. So Ida wants to tell us something about her family and their relationship to the institution of slavery. Um, I would say um, her family as a sort of ally, um, a compatriot to um, Adeline. Um, And so that's one part of the story here. How do um, Americans generally, how do Southerners in particular, um, want to be remembered with respect to the institution? And at least this family wants to be remembered um, as having allied itself with an enslaved woman um, who was um, attempting to resist being sold away further south.
1: So so the story that, Green, that Ida Greenwell narrates is basically one where her parents essentially rescued this woman from the slave trade by purchasing her. There's a lot of ironies and yeah. paradoxes in there. It is. Um, yeah. And she, she's very clear, right?
0: She said, um, my father was not a slave owner. Yeah. Um Well, of course he was (laughs) um, in a literal sense, but I think she's trying to convey um, a a cultural sense, right, in which um, this was not a household um, that was um, dependent upon um, in its most explicit sense in
1: owning enslaved people maybe. And uh, the overall framing of the letter or the way that, that the letter frames the life of Adeline Henson is essentially that she was a faithful and loyal servant to her parents, to her family. So it's essentially a narrative of a faithful slave and then subsequently a servant, right?
0: Yes, um, she explains, um, Adeline was part of the family, um, mm. loved, respected, um, a lady, um, and yes, um, faithful unto death mm. is the way in which um, Ida ends this letter. And we can recognize, um, I think, in these um, terms and in this characterization, that um, a somewhat stock stereotypical narrative um, that uh, southern slaveholders also promoted. Um, this mm. notion that um, slavery um, had not been a harsh or exploitative um, relationship but instead had been a familial one. Um, and this, um, while I think I would term this more myth than Um, history um, is an essential component of the story that Ida Greenwell wants to tell, um, one about um, a woman um, who was, as you put it, um, rescued from the auction block by her family um, and then um, in exchange, if you will, um, became a loyal um, servant um, and family member um, for the remainder of her long lifetime.
1: Hmm. And it was a long lifetime. She lived, according to Greenwell, to be 98 years old and spent the entire uh, second half of her life with uh, with Ida Greenwell's family. Just to punctuate that point, there's a line in the letter where Greenwell writes, We all loved her dearly. She would have given her life to save ours. So she really emphasizes that kind of reciprocal connection between them.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, it seems important to underscore this is a letter that's written from Ida's perspective. Um, looking back, it, it seems 20 years after um, Adeline's death. Um, and um, so we can appreciate um, the sentiment on the one hand, on the face of this document, on the other hand, um, also appreciate um, the ways in which the um, Certainly I want to understand how Adeline herself would have narrated this story. Um, I want to hypothesize um, that there was more to this relationship um, than what Ida reveals, um, certainly more to Adeline's life than simply her fidelity um, to what was one time a, a family who um, claimed her as property.
1: Oh, I think that's so important. Uh, we, in a sense, the... This, this, this set of archival documents is entirely one-sided. We get Ida Greenwell's perspective on Adeline Henson, but we don't get Adeline Henson's own perspective on, on her life. So it's our task as historians to try to read between the lines or against the grain or in conjunction with other documents that might, that might provide a more, um, a more complete picture of what's really going on here. So let's let's follow let's see what we can do to follow Adeline Henson's own life trajectory um, to piece together these fragments to try to to, to put put together a picture uh, for everybody who's listening. So here's a few things that we know, or at least that the documents t- tell us about uh, about Adeline Henson, um, because in addition to the letter, we also have a bill of sale. And in fact, it's the bill of sale that uh, that Ida Greenwell is actually presenting to the Library of Congress um, and just providing context for it. But the bill of sale, in the bill of sale, uh, Adeline Henson uh, is sold by a man named James Cunningham of Anne Arundel County to Mary Elizabeth Price, who is Ida Greenwell's mother. Uh, she is sold uh, for, um, 70 what is it um let's see 75 dollars uh she is described as a colored woman or negro about 40 years old so she's already 40 years old in eight uh, when this when the sale happens the sale takes place in december of 1861 which means that adeline henson was born around 1820 let's say all right so those are some basic, biographical, some basic biographical information that we can learn from the bill of sale. But there's actually a lot that we can we can do around that to try to understand the kind of world that Adeline Henson um, you know, grew up in and lived in until she was in her 40s. So let's start with this question of what it might have been like to be a, a black woman, an enslaved person in Baltimore, before the Civil War, Martha, can you help us understand what that what's going on in Baltimore between 1820 and 1860? That might be a useful context to understand her her life.
0: Sure, um, Baltimore is the third largest city in the United States, so um, it's to say that um, this is um, a place of consequence um, on um, a national scale. Um, by the time uh, the um, Price family purchases um, Adeline in 1861. This is a city that has long been home um, to the largest free African-American community in the country. Mm. Um, By 1861, some 25,000 plus people. very few enslaved people. And so in this sense, um, Adeline and her status is somewhat exceptional in a mm-hmm. city like Baltimore. Probably by 1861, there are no more than one or 2,000 enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And so she's surrounded, um, if you will, by a teeming metropolis, um, one in which African Americans have built um, institutions like churches, um, fraternal orders, benevolent societies, schools, um, and she occupies a somewhat exceptional place as being someone who is still um, bound to labor, um, first for seems James Cunningham and then for the Price family.
1: Yeah, so there's this rich African American community life in Baltimore, um, in part because of, of the large free black population But there's there's this other thing going on in Baltimore as well, up through 1861, which is the pressure of not just slavery, but the slave trade, the the sale of enslaved people from the upper south to the deep south. And Baltimore is, is is an anchor of the domestic slave trade. So enslaved people and free people of color in Baltimore would have lived in the constant shadow of the threat of being sold. Yeah, this is a
0: familiar um, uh, challenge and um, danger, um, both for free people of color and for enslaved people um, throughout what we call the Upper South, including Maryland. And um, Baltimore is a city that is visited by slave traders. Um, that seems to be the case um, for James Cunningham, his anticipation that he can um, bargain with a slave trader and sell Adeline and other enslaved people further south. Um, kidnappers um, who are going to patrol. Um, to some degree, the city of Baltimore, but um, certainly the environs around Baltimore as um, African-Americans, both enslaved and free, are coming and going from a city like Baltimore. That is a very precarious sort of circumstance. So one of the things we can, I think, safely imagine on, is on the mind of someone like Adeline is this domestic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not an unfamiliar or unknown institution. It is decried um, to an important degree in a city like Baltimore, both by African-Americans and by um, white Americans as mm-hmm. well for its cruelty and its indifference to the humanity of African-Americans. Um, so she likely would have known what um, at, what awaited her um, if she were to become caught up in the slave trade. Um, and um, she certainly would have... Um, reason to want to remain in a place that while Baltimore is certainly troubled um, to an important degree by the Civil War itself in this period, um, it still offers a relatively um, stable and safe haven for African Americans, um, even with the um, upheavals of the war.
1: But one thing, Maryland doesn't join the Confederacy. Yes. It stays in the Union. This is a Union state. (laughs) It's a Union state. and. Uh, the, the fact that she sold in December of 1861 is quite auspicious. Uh, the letter from Ida Greenwell says that Cunningham, who had owned uh, Henson, uh, was going to send all of his slaves to Georgia for sale as he wanted to get what he could out of them before they would be freed. So it seems like Cunningham saw the handwriting on the wall and was trying to basically cash out before emancipation,
0: I, I wondered what you thought about that. did you think do you think that the handwriting was on the wall with respect to slavery? Um, certainly for enslaved people, um uh, for African Americans, generally, the war is already um understood to be a a war against slavery and not simply to preserve the union. But I wondered about people like James Cunningham or the Price family., um, you know, do they really think slavery is um, uh, over as an institution and so are going to um, sort of uh, cut their losses um, as Cunningham is characterized here, um, or if there was more ambiguity. I, I really did wonder what you thought about that because I think I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. I think Cunningham might have been reading the reading the tea leaves in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, and And even if he doesn't necessarily imagine the Civil War overthrowing slavery as it as it eventually did. I mean, I don't think, I think most people didn't see that coming okay. uh, even as late as December of 1861. He might have seen emancipation or some kind of threat to slavery taking place in Maryland.
0: Uh, and that's all, that's been true in Maryland for a long time, yeah. which is to say Marylanders participate in this domestic slave trade precisely because the institution is increasingly precarious
1: mm-hmm. um, uh, as we go forward, yeah. Uh, so, um, emancipation does, in fact, take place. Just uh, I think in Maryland, just three years after uh, Adeline Henson is sold to in
0: November of sixty-four. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and of course, that is that is an extraordinary moment in American history, in African American history. But the responses of newly freed people to the the condition. Of emancipation is widely varied. Um, there are people who leave their owners, who migrate, you know, long distances, either in search of family or to just uh, plant down roots in a new place. There are people who stay where they are and uh, make claims to the land that they had um, that they had worked for so many years. But there, are, but then there's Adeline Henson, mm. who. Stays with the prices, stays with the prices for the next 50 years, and it's almost like emancipation makes, at least in the representation of her life in Greenwell's letter, it's like emancipation is a non-event.
0: Mm. You know, you say that, and yet I want to I come back to the bill of sale, okay. if I could, yeah, because yeah. There's a detail in the Bill of Sale for me that is intriguing and that suggests to me that despite her plight in 1861, despite being sold by Cunningham to the prices, Adeline is um, fashioning herself or being fashioned as someone who is um, certainly more... Um, than property here. And Mm. what's the clue for me? She has a second name. She has a last name. And it is, in fact, not Cunningham's name, right? Mm -hmm. not the name of her owner, which if that were to be the case, it wouldn't surprise us that she was given or adopted the name of an owner, Um, nor does she adopt the name uh, Price, even Mm. as she has lived with the prices. Um, Instead, Um, She's Adeline Henson, and we don't know, at least not yet, um, where the name Henson comes from. But on this document, it gives her a kind of um, autonomy, uh, a kind of personhood that I think should um, intrigue us, um, which is to say the acquisition of a name, um, particularly Mm -hmm. a second name for enslaved people, is part of that process of becoming autonomous, of becoming free, Um, And while we don't yet know where the name Henson comes from, um, it is a suggestion, I know we're going to talk a little bit later Mm. about how her name changes, Um, it is in the acquisition of a name um, that we begin to see the ways in which um, maybe for the first time an enslaved person is beginning to craft um, an autonomous identity. Mm. Um, So I'm deeply intrigued by this. um, And... Uh, and in part because I've read many bills of sale and other documents related to um, transactions like this one in mm-hmm. Baltimore. And it's just as likely that an enslaved person would have one name. Huh. They would have a name. They would be described as colored or Negro. Um, they would have an age. Mm-hmm. Um they might be um uniquely identified by um a scar um or mm. their height or their skin color, or the mm-hmm. texture of their hair. But Adeline has a name, yeah. um, and I do think that's a powerful at least um, uh, sign um, that um, she has an identity that is distinguishable yeah. um, from the people who own her.
1: And Henson is, is, uh, is a very intriguing name because there's a, a more famous African American Marylander uh, with the same last name Henson, Josiah Henson, uh, who's uh, that's great? A, f- a fairly well, you know, he's a well-known figure in African American history. He is said, I believe, to be the basis or one of the inspirations for Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. So we have no idea, but you know, it's we can at least speculate that, you know, maybe maybe they're related. Yeah, know?
0: and and that and that um, we know from other contexts that um, enslaved people are quite purposeful. Um, when they go about adopting names, um, particularly in this era, um, so many people named um, adopt the name Freedman, for example, oh. or Freeman, um, as right a, a, yeah. a very clear um, assertion, right, of this transition from slavery to freedom. Um, so um, rarely is a name um, an accident; um, it is um, much more often. Um reflection of a kind of um, choice or a kind of identity.
1: Martha, one of the things I appreciate about your analysis of this bill of sale is that you know the a bill of sale is really the epitome of the commodification of a person. Mm. and in that sense, also the dehumanization of um of enslaved people. I mean, they're they're reduced to to being treated as objects and commodities. But here, in just in looking at her name, you're recovering a bit of her. Her, her her own identity. The other thing about this collection of materials is that we ha- we have beyond the bill of sale um, which is such a such a um, uh, demeaning kind of document there's also two photographs of of Adeline Henson and I want to focus on the one of her as a younger woman, because we suspect that this photograph—actually, it's a tintype—I should be—I should be accurate about that. This tintype was taken around the same time, probably as the bill of sale was done. So maybe a couple of years after. So it, you know, we've seen so many—you and I, as historians of slavery—so um, many bills of sale, but it's very unusual. Very unusual to have a bill of sale accompanied with a photograph of the person who's identified in that bill of sale, so that might be another way of recovering a bit more of her, um, you know, her individuality here. So we're looking at this photograph now, and or sorry, tintype, uh, and it's um, a really poignant image. Um, of Adeline Henson in an in an oval kind of portrait. The portrait is in a um, in an embossed um, paper frame. And uh, Martha, just tell us what you see in this photograph. For those of you who are listening, you'll be able to find this photograph on the podcast website and look at it for yourself.
0: When I saw this photograph um, the first time you shared it with me, I understood immediately why. Um, this folder was one you wanted to spend more time with and talk about because it is um, poignant, it is even arresting. Um, First and foremost, I think, for um, the image of Adeline herself, um, who is looking um, directly at us um, into the camera, Um, Likely, this photograph is taken in a studio, which would have been typical um, for 1861, Um, and there's no embellishment or detail um, behind her, and so it's a rather stark uh, portrait. Um, But she looks at us um, with a kind of um, seriousness, Um, I think. um, It's a somber um, portrait. Um, she would have had to held, hold her pose for a little, at least a little while um, in order to get the photo just right. Um, we notice um, her clothing. Um, it, she's shot from the, um, uh, from the chest up. Um, and so we can see um, her, uh, perhaps it's a dress or a jacket, um, with brass buttons, um, a, a small, um, looks like a lace collar, um, a very uh, well-tailored piece, um, perhaps her best um, clothing um, she's donned um, for this occasion. Um, she has um, on a, a brooch, um, a colorful brooch that's been um, water then by um, the uh, Portrait Studio um, just to bring out its detail. Um, so she's got jewelry, perhaps earrings... Um, and uh, shiny, uh, probably, brass buttons um, that run the, um, the length um, of the front of her jacket. Um, so we get the sense of, um, I think, her own um, dignity and forthrightness, um, uh, but also um, uh, her possession of um, some articles of um, refinement, mm-hmm. um, which is to say, sometimes we see portraits where people have borrowed the clothing, mm-hmm. and it's ill-fitting mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't made for that individual. This, this, um, The fit um, on her neck and on her shoulders um, just lead us to, I think, um, imagine that this actually was clothing that was made um, for her. Um, The last thing I'll say, if I could, you know, is just that maybe this portrait is remarkable um, uh, for what's not here, Um, that there are many portraits of African American women, enslaved women, particularly domestic workers um, from this era in which you would find a figure like Adeline um, in the company of a child, a Mm -hmm. white child, um, a child of the household um, in which um, these women were held as slaves um, there is no child here um, again I think reinforcing you know that sense of Adeline as a kind of autonomous mm. um, individual here um, uh, and so um, I compare it to the rather ubiquitous image of the enslaved woman holding um, uh, the white child who is her um, who is her charge and that marks her mm. um, indelibly, as a, um, an enslaved woman. Here, I would say, did we not have the documents, we might conclude that Adeline was a free woman rather hmm. than enslaved um, because of her, her clothing, her jewelry, and because she's depicted alone.
1: Yeah. We'll come back to Professor Jones in a minute, but I wanted to learn more about the photographs of Adeline Henson, so I asked Beverly Brannon for some help. Beverly is the Senior Curator of Photography at the Library of Congress. When I told her about these photographs, she was intrigued. And like me and Martha, she wanted to find out as much as she could about the striking portrait of the younger Adeline. So I had a conversation with her about what she found out. Hi, hi Beverly. Hi. We have um, a really, this really in- remarkable portrait of uh, Adeline Henson, Uh, and it's really this portrait that caught my attention, um, you know, with respect to this collection. Uh, And I I was just wondering, uh, you know, you're a a curator of photography, you've seen a lot of photographs. Um, So as 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 an expert in photography, help us understand what we can learn about Adeline Henson from looking at this photograph as an object.
2: The photograph is a tin type, which is a photographic image on a metal base, and this kind of photography was in use from the mid-1850s until the early 20th century, but it was most heavily used until about the 1880s. They were most frequently about 2 by 3 inches, which could easily be mailed or carried in a pocketbook or a pocket. They needed some kind of protection to keep the image from getting scratched or bent. Usually they were in a case or a frame or a paper mat. In this instance, we see the least expensive form of protector, a paper mat. It's not the absolutely least expensive form because it's on thick paper embossed with a fancy pattern. It's not a plain sheet of paper. On the back, there's more information. We see that the price for a dozen of these cards, as they were called, was $2.50 a dozen. That's 21 cents a piece. That's about $2, $3.25 in today's money. We can see the photographer's name and address on the back. It was John C. Baum. He had licenses in Washington, D.C. for both studio and traveling photography between 1862 and 1866, so possibly he was one of the photographers who went to military camps around Washington to photograph soldiers so they would have pictures to send home. The address on the back of the tin type is 1st Street and Pennsylvania Avenue, which puts him in a lower-class neighborhood. It suggests that he catered to a largely working-class clientele, and a directory of Washington, D.C., photographers of the Civil War gives an additional address of 498 Pennsylvania Avenue. Matthew Brady's studio was at 625 Pennsylvania Avenue, and Alexander Gardner's studio was nearby at 7th and D., as was Clara Barton's Red Cross headquarters. For Adeline Henson to have sat for him, she probably came to Washington in 1866. That was the last date he maintained a studio in Washington. The family lived, the Price family with whom she came to Washington, lived at B Street North, which in 1934 became Constitution Avenue. This would have been a short walk to Mr. Baum's studio. In what? Sorry,
1: that's okay. (laughs) So so it sort of seems like uh, there's a whole little uh, neighborhood or district of photographers. Correct. uh, In in downtown Washington, let me ask you one uh, question about the 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 tintype as an object. Uh, You actually um, and uh, a team here at the library actually took the the tintype out of the mat, right? To take a look at it. No, we didn't
2: take it out of the mat. Okay. We looked at the back of it, and wow. our conservators were able to use some special equipment mm-hmm. to read what was under the dollop of glue that wow. was holding the type onto the letter that came in as a package to the library. Oh, so great. that's how we got the photographer's name.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for doing that. Uh, I knew there, was mo- there were more secrets inside the photograph. I just... <laughs> I'm glad you were able to to get at that.
2: uh, We recently purchased the Howland album, the Emily Howland album, with Mm. the early photograph of Harriet Tubman. Mm. We purchased it with the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. The backs of those pictures told us so much more about the photographs that it was easy to justify doing it again, in this case, to look at the back. Yeah.
1: That, that's a great. That's a great tip for anybody doing historical research. Always turn the document around and see what's on the back. <laughs> that's great, wonderful. Do we? Ha- do you happen to know if Frank Baum? I'm sorry, John Baum. Um, did any uh, portraits of other African Americans in the 18th? We don't
2: know. We have only a few instances of his being mentioned, and we haven't seen others of his pictures. But now that we know this. Mm. Will be alert to it because I consulted with several other photography historians who knew the name but didn't know the pictures. But now we'll certainly be alert to it.
1: So this is the first tintype we have from John Baum
2: that we know of. Well,
1: that we know of. Oh, that's that's amazing.
2: Now okay. we have to turn them all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: Oh wow. So, uh, so what do you think that what do you think we learn uh, about Adeline Henson from? thinking about this tintype as a portrait for what it says about about her, her demeanor, her presentation, that sort of thing.
2: Adeline Henson was concerned about her appearance. We can tell from looking at this picture. Although her expression reveals little except maybe sadness, we can tell from the way she carries herself that she cared about who she was as a person. She was neat, tidy, modest, and up to date in her clothing,
1: hmm. Well, thanks for that description that really brings brings her uh, her image to life, I think. Uh, let me ask you one final question um, what do you th- What do you think it is that these photographs from the nineteenth century uh, give us that maybe more conventional textual written material does not?
2: There's an immediacy immediacy of looking at somebody's face looking at their eyes that you don't get from reading the two forms of information complement each other and give at least a two-dimensional we can't have a three-dimensional impression of them but they do give a second dimension to a written document
1: yeah who was it who said the eyes are the window to the soul
2: that I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I have heard that, it before. I
1: think of that uh, looking at this portrait of and, Adeline Henson.
2: And she was very careful about not revealing too much. Yeah.
1: As you just heard from both Beverly and Martha, John Baum's photograph of Adeline Henson is a valuable compliment to the Bill of Sale and Ida Greenwell's letter about her. It helps us to imagine her as a woman poised on the edge of freedom At the end of the Civil War. So I'm struck that Beverly detected sadness in her expression, and Martha called the tintype a somber portrait. There's no glimmer of joy at the coming of emancipation, perhaps because Adeline's life does not seem to have changed very much, as we will see. Still, it's impossible to know what was really running through her mind, or filling her heart while she sat there in Baum's studio in Washington D.C. Because none of her own testimonies in the records, this is what makes her elusive. So let's return now to my conversation with Professor Jones, and explore what happened next to Adeline Henson, and see what more we can learn about her. I actually want to return to the letter, and and trace Adeline Henson's life a bit further. Uh, into the 19th century and, and towards her old age. So in the letter, Ida Greenwell certainly describes Adeline Henson as a, as a domestic servant of the Price family, somebody who stayed with them, somebody who looked after the children. Uh, Greenwell writes, My mother died when we were all young. She watched over us and carried out our mother's wishes as far as possible. She was a lady in her actions and was treated with the greatest respect by everyone who entered our house. Then Greenwell says something very, really intriguing and a little bit disturbing. She writes, she did not associate with colored people unless it was the help in our house. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, Greenwell really is, is, is really trying to make an argument that that Adeline Henson's life was the Price family, was Ida's family, and not and not a kind of independent existence with ties to other Black people. And I should add that at this point, sometime uh, during or just after the Civil War, the Price family moved from Baltimore to Washington D.C. So, for the second half of her life, uh, until the early 20th century, Adeline Henson lived in Washington with uh, with the Price family. Um, but what do we make of that uh, that assertion that Adeline Henson did not associate with, um, quote-unquote, colored people unless it was the help in our house?
0: Um, this is probably um, the most, um, uh, from a historian's perspective, the most provocative line mm. in this letter um, that Ida Greenwell pens in 1837. Um because it is um, so extreme in its characterization of, um, of Adeline. She did not associate with colored people unless it was the help in our house. And knowing, as we do, that Adeline lives first in Baltimore and then in Washington, D.C., where um, you know the streets and the alleys um, would have been you know, regularly teeming with African-Americans, be they enslaved in the early part of her life and certainly free people. Subsequent, um, it is difficult to imagine that she didn't associate with any other um, African-Americans, with the exception of those on the household. Um, We might say it makes her sound a little bit like a prisoner, yeah,
2: um, huh.
0: and and um, Captive. Th- that might be one way to, um, I think, read this. Um, but I think we need some help, um, if if I could put it that way, yeah. with some other materials um, about this family, about Adeline, um, about this household, to um, help us appreciate um, whether, in fact, Ida is um, overstating um, the degree to which Adeline was. Um, sort of bound um, by this household um, for the entirety of her life.
1: And and I would add, into her death. Into her death. Because at the end of Greenwell's letter, and this is quite striking as well, uh, uh, she writes that, uh, My sister and I took her remains to Baltimore for burial at Greenmount Cemetery, Baltimore. Every member of the family alive was present. We had a white minister and a white undertaker. Um, so even in death, uh, the, the, Ida Greenwell and her family sort of absorb, um, Adeline Henson into their, into their household. And I actually called the Greenmount Cemetery and to see if I could verify this or find more information. And, uh, what's really interesting is they actually have, they have the records of the Price family lot and they have the record of a woman named Adeline Dixon, being buried there in 1917. Now, many of those details are consistent with Greenwell's uh, narrative. Um, it, you know, suggests that, you know, that's Adeline. She was around 98 years old when she died, and she she was buried with the, with the prices. But there's this one detail that's a little arresting, which is that uh, her last name is Dixon, not Henson. So what Is going, you know, what is so that there's there's a new mystery to be solved here. How did her name change, provided it's the same woman? And I have to believe it was. What explains the change of name from Henson to Dixon?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I want to say about these lines that you've um, read from the letter, you know, I think that Ida Greenwell believes that she's. honoring and raising up Mm -hmm. the status and the esteem of someone like adeline to characterize her as having lived um her much of her life um certainly um the the long last decades of her life um, only among and with white people Mm. right this is a kind of um I don't know. We call that a backhanded compliment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, so um, it, it is all the more, um, I think, suspicious for <laughs> for being yeah. this kind of exaggerated sort of compliment um, that she had so, so little to do with African Americans. I think it tells mm-hmm. us a little bit about how um, Ida Greenwell herself might have viewed African Americans. Both on the streets of Baltimore and Washington, um, but in the rituals of life and death and burial. Um, so, um, but yes, I want to talk about the change of name um, because um, we've already talked about the degree to which um, the um, having two names um, is uh, mm. a distinguishing. Um, dimension of this um, person we want to know so much more about. And now we learn, um, at least at the end of her life, she has um, uh, adopted a new um, last name. Um, now, there's an easy hypothesis, um, but it's one that runs counter to um, the narrative that Ida Greenwell has offered us. Can, I say, hi-
1: it? Easy- hmm? Can I say it? Please. Yeah, she got married. She got married, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, of course, and um, and then um, and so um, she adopts a new name, um, which is Dixon, mm. and um, and this, of course, runs counter to the story that Ida Greenwell um, mm. has told us. Ida Greenwell never reveals to us um, that Adeline um, not only acquires a new name, um, but has clearly relationships with other African Americans. Um, in Washington, including, it sounds like, um, intimate relations and family, um, a different sort of family Hmm. than the family um, that Ida Greenwell has um, described to us in her letter.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. You just can't read these letters at face value. You have to dig a little bit deeper. You
0: just can't.
1: So there's one other document um, that I think might also shed a little bit of light on this question. The second photograph in the collection which is you can recognize as a more conventional photograph, uh, is described as a caption uh, that describes the photograph as a picture of her, of Adeline, when she was old, taken July, 1913. So this would put her at the, around 90 years old. And, and it's a little bit faded, but still another striking photograph um, of an, an old African-American woman, all dressed in white, sitting on a stoop. Um, Because of the fading of the photograph, it's very difficult to read her expression. But even this tells us something. Martha, what do you think this photograph tells us? Well, this is wonderful,
0: right, because the technology of photography has um, changed over uh, between these two photographs, the one taken in the 1860s and this one um, in 1913, such that we get something um, that we'd recognize today as a snapshot um, taken outside. Um, Looks to me um, like Adeline is um, posed here on the stoop or, or the steps Of um, the home. I think this would have been um, Ida Greenwell's home um, uh, in Washington by 1913. Um, But it goes back to the um, point we were making earlier about um, did she or did she not associate with um, other African Americans. Um, Well, we see her um, sitting um, on the stoop facing the street. And it's not hard, of course, to imagine in a city like Washington that she is um, uh, out here enjoying the sunshine, um, but that there is foot traffic, um, Mm -hmm. that there are um, neighbors, passers-by, delivery people, workers. Um, How deep her sociability went, it's hard to say, um, but One needn't go much farther um, than the front stoop in a city like Washington um, to encounter and come to know um, other African Americans um, living um, in nearby homes or on their way um, here and there. Um, It's another moment in which I suspect Ida isn't telling us enough about um, Adeline's uh, engagement with uh, a bigger world um, than that of the Price family.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think just sitting on the stoop, it's really a kind of bridge uh, space between the, the inside of the house and the broader life of the city. So it, 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 in some ways it's an apt metaphor, I think, for Adeline Henson's uh, life, sort of cut between maybe. hmm um, Thank you, Martha. That's really quite, um, quite insightful, and um, I've just appreciated this whole conversation with you. Thank you so much for, um, for your um, expertise on these documents, really helping us to to read them, to read what's there, and also to recognize what's not there. And I think those are part part and parcel of the challenges of doing African American women's history, certainly in the nineteenth century, but you know, it's also um, true of history in general, right? So I just want to conclude on this on this note. So in Ida Greenwell's letter, she writes, I wish to present to the Library of Congress the bill of sale of a colored slave. It may be of value, I'm sorry, it may be of some value in years to come. Well, it may have taken 80 years, but I think we can safely say that, that we have found the, the value. In in this collection, so absolutely, Martha. Thanks for joining me, and thank you all for listening. This has been African American Passages: Black Lives in the 19th Century. <laughs>
0: When my grandpa's uncle do remember me when my grandpa's uncle do remember me oh when my grandpa's uncle do remember me oh you want oh, I... This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress visit us at loc.gov